Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming. Honestly, I woke up this morning and I was having like this PTSD flashback of the first time I stood up here during the COVID lockdown and was told, just look at the camera. But I kept wanting to look, knowing full well, there's no one here. There's no one here. Just look at the camera. And I was thinking, I don't know how bad the rain is going to be, but I hope it's not so bad that people don't show up. So thank you for, for real, for showing up. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, weather kind of makes it feel like the mood is kind of heavy in the room. Anyone feeling like weather does that to you? No? Nobody? Or it's all making you feel that way, and that's why you're not even answering my question. Uh, here's the deal. It's a rainy day. We have no idea what's coming, but right here and right now, we have control over the, the joy that is in us. And so I, I want to tell you, you have total freedom. If you want to say amen or you want to laugh, you have freedom to do exactly that. That's what we're here to do, to be encouraged. But this morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series. We're, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascents. How many of you have enjoyed the Psalms of Ascents? This is what I've been loving about it in my own personal life, and maybe some of you can relate. How many of you feel like, I have had a week? Anyone? How many of you feel like, I have had a month? Anybody just feel like, I'm owning it, I have had a year? Anyone? (laughs) Here's the deal about the Psalms of Ascent. They are the the hymnal, they're literally like the 15-hymn songbook for the people as they pilgrim up to Jerusalem to worship God. And if you've been following along, these hymns, some of them are like, well, that's pretty interesting they would put that in a song. We're going to get some of that today. But every part of the human experience is described in these psalms. I wrote down a few things. There is lament, the deep, deep angst and and feeling of what is wrong in the world. There is desperation. There is joy. There's been confusion and heartbreak. There's been victory and there's been hope. There's been excitement and there's been a, what do we do now? And I don't know about you, but I feel like as these psalms come together, they were never intended to just be one-offs. You know, Psalm 131, that's my favorite song. These were meant to be sung as a collective whole. And as they do, you begin to get your arms around every human experience and then God begins to break through, and the the psalmist tells us how God reacts to us, even in our difficulty, even in our disobedience, in our heartbreak, God shows up. And I don't know about you, but I've been really encouraged by that. And so this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 132. Um, we were on this little little uh, kick for a while there where all the psalms were like two or three verses. So when Danny asked me to preach, I'm like, okay, that would be awesome. And I flipped it open, and of course, it's the 18-verse one. Um, so buckle up. Yeah, I heard this rainstorm is supposed to come at 5 p.m., and we might still be here by the time it shows up. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but Psalm 132, here's the deal with Psalm 132. If you were just looking in your Bible and, and you were looking through the Psalms, one of the things that would just stand out to you is that there is, uh, a, all of a sudden, it's much longer than the others. And so you'll notice that it's longer, but there's something really cool about this Psalm that is not in common with the others. It kind of starts in this way, like the other Psalms, where it's calling to mind the things of David, and here we go to worship. But then there's this moment where uh, the the great uh, theologian and preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says, is the hinge moment, where all of a sudden the psalmist stops talking about the people and who they are and what they're about to do, and he begins to describe God, where they're going into Jerusalem, as the great host that is setting the table for them. It's almost like this realization that we can go to worship God all we want, and we can be faithful, and we can bring our songs, but 
If it isn't for God literally being present in the place that we are going, it's all for naught. Would you agree with that? And so um, this is what Psalm 132 is all about. It begins with this plea. And maybe you've, um, anybody like ever call on your association with somebody else to get a favor? Anybody ever do that before? Like, hey, you know so-and-so, and you name drop somebody because you're trying to, like, mooch off of maybe something that they have going on? This is how this psalm starts. God, we're going up to worship you. Remember David? Remember that guy? He's our relative. He was a great king. Will you remember him as we come? And maybe some of the blessing that, that fell on him will kind of sprinkle off of him. And so they call and they say, remember, they're pleading. God, please associate us with David because he's awesome. And where it ends is this. That your association with David will never be enough. But it's okay because God is faithful even when you are not, even when you're the greatest association you could have on earth. King David is not good enough. God is still enough for you. And you are going to the temple, the psalmist says, and you're going there and God is the generous host that's setting the table for you and he is excited to be with you and for you to come in his presence. Does that sound something like you want to hear about today? Okay, Psalm 132, verse 1, says this. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. This is what I'm talking about. Hey, remember David. It's not just, hey, remember what David did. It's remember what David did, and then maybe if you remember how great he was, it will fall on us as well. All the hardships that he endured, how he swore to the Lord and he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Let's talk about David for a minute. So often we think of David. How many of you are like old school Sunday school felt board lovers? Okay, so you're probably thinking, David, David, who is David? He's like a little guy. He can't put on the armor. It's too heavy. He's got like a leather sling and a couple rocks and he slays a giant. How many of you are so grateful David slayed a giant? He did do that, and he did become a great king. But here's some other things that happened. He got into some crazy drama with his own family. He had estranged family members that he was longing to be reconnected with, and some of them the Bible doesn't ever tell us happen. He has moments in his life where he's facing almost certain death. Just imagine the anxiety and the fear of, I am going to die in this moment. He's attacked by powerful, well-connected political people. He has public scandals. He has people who surround him and intentionally try to destroy his reputation. He literally makes decisions that ruin his own reputation. And so they say, God, remember what David endured. Remember what he went through, but here was the thing that, you, that we want you to remember, God. It's this, that he vowed that he would not enter his home. And what kind of home does a king live in? They live in a palace. Until God has a resting place in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so I was thinking this week about this, and I was thinking about how important it would have been for that nation. You know, uh, you know David was uh, the second king, right? And so they are this young nation, and they're trying to figure out, like, how can we get our feet underneath us? What roots are we going to put in the ground? What are we going to build so that we can grow into a powerful nation who, by the way, is, is sandwiched in between some very powerful places? And so David is in charge of this place, and the expectation is that he's going to help them rise to power. They're going to protect themselves. They're going to be independent. And do you know what the first thing David says is? I don't need a 
a palace. I don't need a throne. I don't need to collect taxes to build the military and become more violent and more extreme. What we need, and we're going to find this out in a second, is to go track down where the heck did the Ark of the Covenant go. And we need to bring it back because all of that stuff is just fluff and it's just layers if the presence of God is not with us. So he says, I'm not going to enter my house or get into my bed. How many of you are like, I will go, 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 but you're like me, as soon as sleep hits, I'm out. I got no more bandwidth, right? The house could be burning down. I'll take care of it in the morning. I got I to gotta get my solid six or seven. Um, I actually have an under one-year-old, so my solid four and a half sometimes, but I got to get it. But here's the point. Two things. The first thing I think that we know about David is these people are not trying to sugarcoat that David was this perfect guy. You all know that David was not a perfect guy. But it was this, is that God actually does remember hardships. He actually does remember affliction when it happens on the road to glorifying him. How many of you have ever felt like, man, I am following you. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I'm submitted to you, God. I'm trying to follow you. And I feel like life is just getting harder. Anybody ever feel that way before? I think the first thing the psalmist is trying to instill in these people as they're singing this song. By the way, weird song. Maybe someone could tell me what the chords are, but it's still, the lyrics are just maybe difficult to sing. He's saying, even in your affliction, God remembers your affliction when it's done unto his glory. So I think here's the main point if you're taking notes is this. Suffer well. If you're in the midst of suffering and you're looking for God, keep looking for him, but be faithful in the midst of it. The second part is this, and I I read this quote and it sums it up really well this week. It was from a commentary and the, the author wrote this. In the ancient Near East, Israel is the most odd of people. They are the only ones for whom a house for their Lord is more important than a house for their king. Isn't that interesting? Now, you may be thinking, maybe you're like, well, I've read the Bible a little bit, and it turns out, is he going to mention that David doesn't actually build the temple for the Lord? Uh, Here I am mentioning it. It's true. But David doesn't build the temple for the Lord. That, That falls to his son Solomon. In fact, the Bible tells us that God tells the prophet Nathan that, hey, this is actually not going to be for David. But here's the point of why David is so important. It's it's because David recognizes our nation is going to be lost. Our nation, the Israelites, we have no chance if we don't build around the presence of God, the worship of God. And so this is not a a kingly pet project that he comes up with, like, oh, it would be nice, it would be, you know, get me more votes in the next midterm election. It's just uh, something I should do to be nice to the people. It's absolutely essential. And David chooses prioritizing God's glory and his presence over his own comfort, his own status, and his own image. And so if you're taking notes, these are some of the thoughts that I had this week. Is I just put it this way. What is my priority for the proximity of God? How would you describe your desire to experience God's presence? We can leave that on the screen for a second. You've probably gotten used to me saying things like this, but I think the real true answer for all of us to some degree or another, and you can nod your head if you agree, is it depends. Would you agree? When you're on a nice trail in the woods, you got a river next to you and a little breeze and your Bible in your hand, man, it's pretty easy to prioritize that God is present with you, isn't it? 
How about when you get called into your boss's office and you get corrected and you're piping hot and mad about it? A little harder. You see what I'm getting at? I think this is what David has instilled in the people of Israel, so much so that they want to write songs about it and, and, and put it into the hymnal that they will sing for generations as they go up for the festivals to worship God. And it's this, that David has reminded us the presence of God has to be central to all things. Now, this is not the message of, oh man, if you don't wake up at 5 a.m. and start your devotions, your life is ruined. Here is the, the, the lesson I think the psalm is telling us, is this is that when you look back in time, maybe you look back five years ago, are you seeking the presence of God more than you were then? This is the the process that we call sanctification. It's beginning to notice God in places we never noticed him before. It's beginning to seek after God in ways that we had forgotten, maybe, that God could really speak to you in a cubicle at work. But now I recognize it, and I pause, and I, I seek out the Lord. And so the question is, how would you describe your desire to experience God's presence. Now I want to give you one more caveat before I move on, and it's this. We believe as followers of Jesus that God is with us. Did you know that? God with us. We sing songs about it. And so I am not telling you that, man, you got to go find your place because if you don't know where God is, then you're just out there all alone. God is with you. Did you know that? The challenge that the Bible lays before us is to recognize God's presence in ways that we maybe never even thought to look. Maybe we never experienced God in a certain place, and so we just assume that he's not there. What is our priority? What do we do? How do we arrange our lives in a way that say, God, I want to make room to recognize you working in my life every single day. Sometimes it might be big, explosive uh, experiences. Sometimes it might just be the little, tiny thing the little change of mood or the the change of attitude that helps you set sail for your day in a way that's honoring and glorifying to the Lord. Excuse me. We're going to move on. Verse 6, it says this. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Are you so grateful for the internet for stuff like this? How many of you would read that and be like, I'm lost? I uh, told Danny a while back, um, before the internet, if you ever watch old, old, old recordings of people who preach phenomenal sermons before the internet, your jaw should hit the floor. You want to know why? Because they had to have the resources or know where to go, like in an actual book. Let me give you uh, the counter to that. Google.com. What is Ephrathah? Boom. 5,000 resources, and I know what it is in 15 seconds. It's a marvel. I love, I love that about the world we're living in. There's downsides to it, too. We could talk about that another time. Behold, we heard of it. Uh, the it is referring to something every Jew would have known, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what happened. Uh, before David had taken the throne, it turns out that the Philistines, do you remember them? Who's the most famous Philistine? A dead guy named Goliath, David killed him. Nice work, go team. Um, The Philistines actually didn't end their battle with the Israelites when David killed Goliath. They kept fighting, and they actually destroyed them under King Saul. 
And do you know what they did? They stole the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know the story? And everywhere they tried to store the Ark of the Covenant, covenant plagues and sicknesses just kept breaking out among the people. And so they uh, sent a delegation just to take it to um, a far west region of Israelite territory and just dump it. And they more or less dumped it at a guy's house. But the problem was that King Saul, the first king of Israel, he was busy building up a military, flexing his might, showing off his awesome physique, because the Bible tells us he's just a good-looking dude. And he's doing all these things that he doesn't prioritize the presence of God. And so guess what happens to the Ark of the Covenant? Nothing. It just stays out there. When David takes the throne, he says, look, the presence of God is so central, I will not sleep in my own home, literally, until we find it. And it says they began to hear rumors of where it was. And it turns out this place, Ephrathah, you ready for this, is an ancient name for Bethlehem. The presence of God was stashed and stored in Bethlehem. Now what's interesting about this is this is where David was born. This is where Jesus was born. Just out in the sticks, the presence of the living God, the Ark of the Covenant in Bethlehem. That's where they heard of it. I'm sorry I said that that's where it was. It's not where it was. It's where they heard of it. And they found it in the fields of Jar. I think I, I read, I, I, don't, I didn't write it down here, but I think it's like 15 miles away or so. So they go and they find it. And they return it to Israel. Now remember, there's not a temple built yet. We're still talking about a, a tabernacle. But God, God, David's intention is to set up this permanent place where people can come and know that central to everything we do and everything we are is our worship of God and his presence. So it says this, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Now I love this because it's talking about a past event, but it's in a quotation. And remember, this is a song for the people going to the presence of God. So it's recalling a past event, but it's beginning to instill in them this excitement that what are they doing? They're literally going to the dwelling place of God. God is really there. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some made up thing. God is really there. And it says, let us worship at his footstool. The footstool in the the Bible is the idea of coming to the feet of the one who sits on the throne. And so he's, the, the psalmist is saying, that's where we're going. We're going to be in awe of the king. We're going to be in awe, and his presence is really there, and it's there because David said and set into course that the center of all things that we need to do is our worship of our God. Verse 8 says this, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, let your pre, uh, priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. I love this word, arise. It just means like, get up and go. Sometimes I, I want to yell, arise, at my four-year-old when he's just taking his sweet time. <laughs> get up, it's time to go. That's what arise means. And a simple search revealed this to me. The word arise in the Old Testament shows up over and over and over and over in the same context. And you know what it is? It's when the Ark of the Covenant is uh, picked up by the people who are allowed to pick it up, and it leads them into battle. Moses says this in Numbers 10.35, And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, and let our enemies be scattered, and let those who hate the Lord flee before us. So over and over and over, this image is being built up throughout the Old Testament. And whenever the, the Ark of the Covenant is lifted and it's leading, everyone says, arise, it's time to go fight our enemies. 
bloodshed and battle. But the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, verse 8. It's that the character of God is to say, Arise and call you to action, but it's not war. It's worship. That God's heart is not, let's go bring my presence into the field and just defeat everyone. It's my presence and my resting place, the place where I have settled is the place that I say, arise and come worship. And do you know that there are battles to be fought from there? These people are still fighting battles. But the battles begin not with, let's use God's presence to destroy our enemies, but let's use God's presence to come into it for him to shape us, to forgive us of our sins, to remind us of who we are in him, that worship would be at the center. And then when we go out to fight the battles we have to fight, we know that God is with us that God is at the center of all that we do. I love this image in in verse 9. It says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Uh, You may recall, maybe getting past me how long ago it was, but we uh, preached through the entire book of Exodus. Do you remember all the adornments that these guys were wearing? It was like every square inch of their vestments was like, it's got to be that ruby and that jewel and that stitch, and everything was so ornate and beautiful these people wore. You remember that? And the idea was that what they were wearing on the outside in some part was supposed to be a reflection of what was going on inside of them. That they were adorned with these beautiful things and you could look at someone and say, wow, that is a priest. I can tell by what they're wearing. But there was a deeper spiritual implication and it was whatever you're clothed in should be a reflection, an outward reflection of an inner reality. And so he says... Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let their outward reality reflect what's going on on the inside and its righteousness. And then it says, let your saints shout for joy. Where does joy come from? It comes from an inner reality that you are at peace, that you know God is in control, and it comes out of you. All of this because David remembered that God was to be at the center of all things. Then I love verse 10. I don't have anything fancy to say other than they're just name dropping again, trying to associate with David. By the way, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. This is the idea of the anointed one we're going to talk about in a moment. But if you're taking notes, um, I have a couple thoughts and then we'll put up a, a, a slide here in a second. But here are my thoughts. I was thinking about this priesthood and their adornments, and how their outward uh, presentation to the world was supposed to reflect their inner reality. And it wasn't that long ago, it was a few months back, we had um, preached or taught in midweek Bible study through First and Second Peter. Was anybody there? And there's this scripture that we often quote, it comes from First Peter chapter, chapter 2, and it says that you and me are a royal priesthood. That in Christ, we are those priests. And do you know what it says that we're supposed to do about it? It's that our outward lives should reflect an inner reality that God is moving and working in our lives. It's not a call to perfection. It's not a call to put on a a front that's fake. It's to live authentically out of what God is doing in your life. And people will see that God is transforming you from the inside out. So you are the priests. I am the priest. And I got to tell you that I was, as I was preparing, I was much more comfortable thinking of you as the priest than me. And let me tell you why. 
Because if our outward appearance is supposed to reflect our inner reality, how many of you would like your inner reality hung up on a clothesline for everyone to see? I heard this terrifying thing. Some of you have heard of it. There's some um, very smart people who are uh, attempting to invent a technology that would go into your brain. Have you heard of this? And it could communicate with the technology in someone else's brain. I think it's called the neural net or the neural link. And we could talk about, uh, people are not supposed to have this. I'm, I'm just going to say that. That's my opinion. But one of the things that terrified me was not that it would go in there. It was that they were describing it like this, that it can read your brain waves and it can communicate your brain waves to someone else who has it. And they wouldn't even really need you to speak words because they would already kind of know what you're thinking. And I thought, oh, gosh. <laughs> I hope I never get forced to have that. That would be bad. You're laughing, which is a sign of um, you're trying to deflect that you feel the same. Is that true? <laughs> how many of you would like your inner thoughts? Maybe uh, you go to work and every single person you see, how many of you would like every coworker to know what you're thinking in your mind? Show of hands. Nobody. And so I read this, and I was thinking, outward appearance reflecting inward reality. Are we called just to be so blunt and honest that we just tear people apart if we're thinking? No. So what is the balance? And I started just kind of free, uh, free thinking with a pen. And I was thinking of uh, a phrase that we often use called imposter syndrome. Everybody know what imposter syndrome is? It's the, if they only knew what was going on in here. It's, um, oh, it's Sunday. I gotta put on my nicest outfit and not just my outfit, but I gotta put on my best behavior. I gotta remember, okay, those four letter words that I say often during the week, I gotta leave those at home when I go to church because I don't want those people to know. These are maybe extreme examples, maybe they're not. But we live in this tension where we understand intuitively that we don't want people to 100% know the inner reality. But here's the thing. God calls us for our outward appearance to reflect our inner reality. It's not a call to perfection. It's a call to submit to Jesus every day and be changed by him. And so I was um, just trying to think, like, how do you get your arms around that? And this is what I came up with. I I have a slide for it. I just wrote this. There are no silver bullets or shortcuts when it comes to submission to Jesus. Our sanctification is a process. Let me tell you what I mean. I mean that we can't just get caught being really, really good at faking it. And sometimes we think the word fake, well, I'm not fake, I just, uh, I'm adaptable. I once took a, um, a, a personality test, I think it's called Strengths Finder, and it came back, and the number one strength was adaptability, and I was thinking, that could quickly turn into a code word for fake, but with like some sugar on top so it sounds better. Right? So how do we live this out? Here's how we live this out. It's an everyday submission to Jesus. It's an everyday repenting of our sins, of recognizing it. And you know what happens? Instead of pride, we begin to be shaped by Jesus to be humble people who recognize, you know what, even in my outward display of who I am, that's not 100% me. I'm not not that good. But God is better. And and as long as I'm submitted to him and he's doing a, a work in me, you know what the Bible says? That the outward reality of your life is not the clothes you wear, it's the fruit that bursts forth. 
that in its season, the harvest of fruit in your, lo- your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, was there one in between there? Gratefulness, yeah. You were probably thinking, I wonder if he's going to get them all, and the answer is, nope, missed one. <laughs> but these are the things that come bursting forth in your life. That is the outward display of your inward reality that I'm submitted to God. And sometimes we think, man, I, I just need like this silver bullet experience. I just need to go to a conference or a, a crazy worship night and then let it all happen. And I got to tell you, those things are awesome. You should pursue those. But the real growth will happen every single day, submitting to God. Sometimes it's mundane. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes there's victory and breakthrough. Sometimes there's confusion. God, where are you? But it's the everyday submission to him. And then sometimes you turn around and you think like, wow. God, I had no idea a human being was capable of being that patient, let alone me. It's the fruit of your life. For the sake of time, I want to move forward. Do we have a water bottle down there, Danny? Verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. Now, I want, to, I want you, if you're reading in your Bible, you could take a, a pen if you're one of those people who's cool with writing in the Bible and just put a line in between verse 10 and 11. Because up until this point, the entire tone of it is, God, remember David. Remember what David did. David was so great, and we're related to him. Please be good to us. Don't forget him. And this is where Charles Spurgeon says there is a hinge. And the psalm recognizes that there is a limitation to name-dropping and associating ourselves with people like David, and we come to the realization that it will never be enough, but God is enough. And so this is what it says, starting in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. This is absolute certainty. Despite their disobedience, God swears an oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. You ready for this? You can circle this word. If, 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 your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. It's an interesting song, isn't it? It's not really like a chart topper But this is what the psalmist is reminding the people of. You're name-dropping David. You want to associate with David. You want God to remember David. You belong to David. And God says, David, you're fantastic. Your line will continue sitting on the throne forever if your sons keep the covenant. This is written probably at least decades, maybe a little bit longer, after David's death. This is written by people who full well know, how did the if go? How did the if go? Not good. It wasn't long until every king of Israel has basically forgotten what David had set forth, that God was central to everything we do. Our worship of him comes before all else. They abandoned it. And the if hinge was twisted because God said if they follow the covenant, if they seek me, if they keep me central to all that they do and they lead, knowing that I'm actually the leader, 
then they will sit on the throne. Well, they didn't sit on the throne. These people sang this song at times where they were captive in Babylon. They weren't even able to go to the temple. And still they sang it. And I think what's being uh, pumped into them is this, is that your association with him will never be enough. You can't act well enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can't be holy enough. I'm so grateful that the, the psalm doesn't end right here, but I wanted to point out a couple things. Is that it turns out that a good time later after the psalm is written, that God had sworn an oath and God was good to his promise. Did you know that? Do you remember when Jesus walks through the street? A lot of the Jewish people, they yell at him, and what do they call him? They call him a son of David. If you were to open up your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew and read the beginning, this is what Matthew does. He tells you how Jesus is related to David. Why? Because remember that old promise back from Psalm 132 that seemed like it had just fallen off a cliff and disappeared forever? It hadn't disappeared forever. Jesus, the son of David, does sit on the throne. Do you know that? If he doesn't, what we're doing here is just like totally pointless. A son of David does sit on the throne. And so if you're taking notes, this is what I I think you should know. Some of you are feeling like, man, I, I know that I know that I know that God had put something in my life and it just hasn't happened. Hang in there. God is good to his promises, and sometimes his timing is so confusing. Would you agree? Sometimes his timing is like, what? It still hasn't happened? How is this possible? I literally know people in this church who have been praying for the same thing for 30, 40 years, still seeking, still seeking. And their example is not one that we look at and think like, wow, maybe they should give up. Their example is, wow, they are showing us what it looks like to hold so tightly to God's promise that they will walk through it for decades. Me, on the other hand, I'm like a three-month kind of guy. I'm hoping in my submission to Jesus to be at four months by the end of the calendar year, but like I, am, I want things to happen. God does come true with his promise. And it takes generations, it takes captivities, it takes destructions of Israel before Jesus comes in the flesh, the son of David, and he raises from the dead and he sits on the throne and he does because God's promise is good. Verse 13 says this, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell and I have desired it. I think this is the point, that this is not some special thing that they earned because they were super awesome. It's not like David woke up and was like, I want to build a temple to a god and hope that it's powerful. He built a temple to God because God had already proven that he wants to be among his people. God had come in the tabernacle. He had led them by fire and by smoke or cloud, right? He he had been present with them, and it had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with God. And so as these people go up to worship, the psalmist wants them to know that the reason you're going into God's presence is because God wants you to come into his presence. This is just groundbreaking stuff going on here. The God of the entire universe is inviting us, inviting them to come into his presence because he wants them. 
He longs for them to come. He created literally an address in Jerusalem for the Jews where they could come because he wants to commune with them. In the New Testament, we know this, that we have been grafted into the vine. And it goes on and tells us this, that God no longer dwells in this temple, but he dwells in a different temple called you. He dwells in you. You are the temple of the living God. He dwells in you. Why? Not because you earned it, but because he wants you to commune with him. He wants fellowship with you. And so I was thinking about this kind of conflict that I've heard throughout the years, and it's, uh, maybe you've heard this before. Um, I've heard a lot of this in the last decade. It seems to maybe have piped down a little bit. Uh, we've heard a lot about the church is a people, not a place. Have you heard that? And I agree with that, that the church is a people. It's not just a concrete building like Bridge Community Church. But I think when we talk like that, we, we maybe miss something really significant, and it's something you know and I know. We all intuitively know it. It's that places are important. Do you know that? Places are significant. How many of you are like, if I just close my eyes for five seconds, I could tell you like my two or three favorite places in the world? Yeah? And I was thinking about places matter. It's not because God is in certain places and he's not in other places. It's because God has chosen to reveal himself to you in significant ways in certain places. How many of you would say this place right here is one of those places? But that's not the only place, is it? I hope not. No, because God doesn't live here at Bridge Community Church. He lives in you, but he reveals himself to you and his character to you in, in different places. And so places matter. And so I've heard statements like this, well, you should be able to connect with God anywhere. And I would say, I agree. But my life experience is full of one that's uh, sentimental and nostalgic and longs for memories that I've had in certain places. And God seems to call me back to those places and speak to me loudly in those places. It doesn't mean that God can't speak to me in the traffic on the I-5. I'm just a little bit more preoccupied with some other activities I might be doing to the other drivers at that time. So I'm probably not, you know. And so I want to encourage you. I know so many of you have your place or you have your places. And I think it's important for us to have multiple places. It's important to, as we submit ourselves to God and we, we want to follow him to recognize we come to these seasons and they, they seem like now we're on a gravel road and we don't know where it leads. But I know I have my places that I can go back to and I can decompress and I can say, God, is this where you want me to be? I can hear your voice clearly. And so um, this is my encouragement to you. I, I made up a slide. It says this. Where is your place? If you don't have one or maybe you're like, you know, maybe I'm new to Orange County or maybe I've just moved into a new house or maybe like me, I, I recently had a, a child so my rhythm of life is different. It's, um, here's my encouragement. Go searching. And I think the scriptures bear out a few things. Look for places of solitude. Remember the story where the disciples wake up and they're frantic to start their day and they look around and Jesus is gone? You remember that? And where do they find him? They find him in a, depending on your, your uh, translation, a desolate place, a quiet place. They find him just connecting to his father in a quiet place without the anxiety. And you know what he says when the disciples come? He tells them, I got 10 more minutes of my devotion. Beat it. <laughs> he receives them and says, okay, 
I'm ready. Whatever the day throws at us, I'm ready. I've connected with my Father. So here's my encouragement. If you're looking for a, a place or you're like, man, I want to explore and, and make this part of my routine of life, find a place of solitude and peace, a place of clarity. I would say this is a place where people who are close to you know my cell phone is going off for an hour. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you just find yourself sitting and taking some deep breaths and saying, God, if you want to speak to me, I'm listening. I've removed the distractions. Psalm 132 wraps up this way. I love this. Listen to all these statements. Remember, it all started with, God, remember David? We're related to him, and now it turns into who God is, and this is what God says. Verse 15. I, this is God, will abundantly bless her provisions. Her is Jerusalem. I will satisfy her poor with bread, Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God is the great host who is setting the table for his presence. He's not demanding more, 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 more. Psalm 132 is God's heart towards what he wants to give to his people as they come to worship him. And it's not just, I want to fill you up with encouragement and send you out with five nice things. Listen to what he says. I will bless her provisions. Her poor will be fed. That God cares just as much about King David and the one sitting on the earthly throne as he cares about those who are starving in the street. He says, her priests, I will clothe with salvation. Their outward uh, appearance will reflect their inner reality. The saints will shout with joy. Why? Because they're all gathering together. This is being sung as people, the roads kind of converge, and there's a bigger and bigger crowd. They're going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And God says, it will happen. There I will make a horn sprout for David. As we wrap up, I know there's some of you who are like the image people. You're like, well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 41, um, that's a joke, there's not 41 chapters. But you're always quoting it to me, and I'm like, I, yeah, got it. Um, I, need, I, I don't want that Neuralink thing, but it would be nice just to have full Bible recall, which I don't have. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I I love what I I read this week. The horn in the Bible is like a rhino or maybe like a deer antler. It's something that sprouts out, and, and it's an expression of strength and might and power. But it's also an expression of patience. Because when a horn sprouts, it doesn't just, a rhino doesn't just wake up one day and have this giant horn. It takes time. It's This thing will develop if it develops properly into might and strength and power, but it will take time. He says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. A lamp is the Bible's image for clarity, for direction. When it says that the the word is a lamp unto my feet, it's that it shines light and shows me the way that I am to walk. And a crown is the dignity and glory that all can see. Everyone knows the king wears a crown, and when they see it, they know that is a person crowned with glory. And the psalmist says that will be for the anointed. And do you know who the anointed are? You and me. That's the end result. So as we wrap up, I wanted to um, read this quote for you. I just thought it was so amazing. And then I want to pray for you. 
This comes from, um, I've said his name a few times, uh, Charles Spurgeon. For some random reason of all the psalms, he wrote a lot, but not a lot about every single psalm. He just seemed to really gravitate to Psalm 132, and I'm grateful for that. But he wrote this. The psalm begins with affliction and ends with a crown. Thus is God's promise for the lives of those who would follow him. My final encouragement for you, and then I want to pray for you, is this. You might be experiencing affliction. If you're a human being, you might be experiencing great affliction and great joy at the same time because we're complex creatures. You might lay in bed at night and feel like there's a relationship that I just want mended and reconciled and you've been feeling the same way for ages. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's your work situation. Whatever it might be, God does not allow affliction for his glory to go unnoticed. Keep pressing forward. And we keep pressing forward because we know that the hope is in him and the hope ends with a crown, as Charles Spurgeon said. Would you stand with me as I pray for you? God, thank you that as we worship you, as we gather around your word, as we fellowship with one another, that you really do change our hearts. It's not a a pipe dream or or something that might happen. It's something that actually happens. And so, God, I I pray that your presence would be thick and heavy with us, even as we experience uh, maybe a big rainstorm in the next few hours. I I pray maybe just the, the phenomenon of being trapped inside would make us pause and take a deep breath and consider some deep things about our lives. God, I pray that as we go about our week, you would remind us that even in the simple, mundane things, you want to meet with us. You want us to be aware of your presence. As your, your word says, that we would pray without ceasing. We would just be in constant communion and communication with you. God, we also know that in the midst of challenging decisions, we need clarity, and so often our our world clouds those things. So I I pray for those who are are looking for places, a place to say, this is my place. I pray that you would reveal those things to them, and I I pray that those times would be sweet. And God, as we gather as a a community, we we recognize that there are so many lessons we can learn individually, but together we're, we're greater than the sum of our parts. And so God, I just pray that our community would be better this week because Bridge Community Church is here. Would you give us opportunities to to practice our outward, uh, the fruit of our lives being a blessing to others? Would our times uh, with you early in the morning, late at night, studying your word, praying, would those things not just kind of remain on a shelf, but would you show us how they burst forth into conversations in our neighborhood or interactions at work? We love you. We want to follow you. We want the world to be better because of who you are in and through us. And so we submit ourselves to you today. Amen. Amen.
Rejoice on high 